Come, Holy Spirit. Inflame us with the fire of your love. Come, sweet guest of the soul. Without your divine impulse, there is nothing in man, nothing that is pure and straight. Straighten the twisted heart. Strengthen the wandering soul. Give to your servants that trust in you your seven sacred gifts, especially the gift of understanding, to penetrate more and more in the depths of your word. O God, send forth your spirit, as you did with your apostles and the Holy Virgin Mary, as they prayed with one heart in the upper room of Jerusalem. We ask you to send forth the same spirit, which is light, strength, and love. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Mary, Mother of God, and our Mother, turn your merciful gaze upon us. Teach us how to pray. Saint Joseph, spouse of Mary, pray for us. All your holy angels and saints, pray for us. Okay, so we're all at a point in these exercises where we know we've survived the first day, the first full day, and we have just a little bit ahead of us. Um, so maybe there's a mixed feelings right now um, about your experience. But at this point in the exercises, after yesterday, where we've gone through several different meditations about sin, about um, the enemies of the soul, really, the two standards, we're kind of at this point where we have a bit of an understanding of the spiritual life. And after last night, hopefully, thinking about our Lord and his passion and his death, we found a bit of strength to, to know how we're supposed to respond to the Lord. So normally at this point in the exercises, this is like the high point, no more sin, death, you know. Um, it's where we speak about the resurrection of our Lord. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Um, and uh, before we get there, though, um, usually during the exercises, there's a point where we speak about the encounter, some kind of encounter of Jesus with somebody in the scriptures. So there are plenty of accounts of the different um, encounters of our Lord with people in the scripture. When I was thinking about which one to do, I kind of struggled at first, because as we're in a retreat here with all women, of course your mind first goes to women in the Gospel. Um, Mary Magdalene, the Samaritan woman. Um, but the more I prayed about it, and the more I thought about it, I don't know why, but the person that came to my mind was St. Peter. And as I started to prepare for this meditation, I just I discovered a lot for myself. And I said, maybe the Lord really can speak to all of us. He can speak to each one of you through the figure of St. Peter. St. Peter's an incredible person. We know, like, in any of the encounters with Jesus, his great command to each person was always, follow me. He either said that explicitly, straight to their face, or it was implied. Anytime that any person in the gospel encounters our Lord, his command is always, follow me. 
And that command, follow me, always requires a response on the part of the disciples, on the part of the women. And for us, it requires a response as well. If the Lord is telling me, he's giving me that same command, follow me, what is my response to that? So we're preparing for Advent, right? We know that Jesus took on human nature. He's come down to earth to teach, to redeem, and to sanctify, to do those things. But he's also willed to work through human people. He's willed to work through the disciples, and he's willing to work. He wants to work through each one of us. So as we're going to see in the encounter with Jesus, anything that that happens, it always leads to transformation, a change in the life of that person. And the Lord does it this way. He wants to transform us. He wants us to be more and more converted because the goal of working through us and through other people is that he can conquer the world. That's been his design. Like if God wanted, he's omnipotent, he could come down and change the world in a second if he wants. But it's his will that he works through human people, through human nature. And he wants to conquer the world through each one of us. You've heard it before, you've heard it many times, but the Lord has called us to be light in the world, salt of the earth, a city that can't be hid. So we're going to take a look this morning at this figure of St. Peter, because he has a lot to teach us. I think you'll be surprised. I was surprised myself, and I've done this kind of meditation a couple times, quite a few times. So maybe the first thing that we could do is just to take a look at the figure of Peter, who he was, his background, a little bit, his character, just so you can get to know him. Um, it's interesting because after Jesus, Peter is the, the figure best known in the Gospels, and he's the most frequently cited, actually. He's mentioned 195 times in the New Testament. And 154 of those times, he's mentioned as Peter. There's an important thing that comes about with St. Peter, and that is that the Lord gives him a new name. So anytime that you come across Peter in the Gospels, you're going to notice a change. When he is referred to as Simon, this is before his encounter with Jesus. And then after he comes to know Jesus, his name changes. God gives him a new name, which identifies him with a new mission, a mission that he has. Peter, rock. So the, the fact that Peter's mentioned quite a bit in the New Testament, 195 times, is significant because compared to the other apostles, all of them put together, they're only mentioned 100, well, only, it's a lot as well, 130 times. And the next disciple that's mentioned the most is St. John, and he's only mentioned 29 times. So 195 to 29 is a huge, it's a huge difference. So I think that means because the gospel, the word of God, is alive and active, this, this fact, the fact that he's mentioned so many times in the gospel, means that he has a lot to teach us. So what are some of the things that we know about St. Peter? Well, we know that he's the son of John. He's mentioned several times as Simon Barjona, which means the son of John. Um, and he came from Bethsaida, along with another apostle, Philip, and also his brother Andrew. Um, 
Father Luke spoke to us a bit about St. Andrew yesterday because it was his feast day. Um, so Bethsaida is a little town next to the east of the Sea of Galilee, kind of an insignificant place. Um, but because he was from that area, it means that he spoke with a Galilean accent, which we might remember because when, um, when it came to the denial of Jesus, St. Peter was kind of picked out. They knew who he was because of his accent. Um, another thing is, like his brother, he was a fisherman, similar to the sons of Zebedee. He actually worked alongside the sons of Zebedee, James and John, as a fisherman. So we can probably assume that he had a small little fishing business, um, and he was pretty well off in that sense. Simple, but well off. Um, we also know that he was uh, motivated by a sincere interest in religion. He really cared about his faith. He wanted God to intervene in the world. And we know this because he made a huge trip with his brother to go to Judea just to hear about St. John the Baptist. So he not only was a working man, a fisherman, he was also married, we know that as well, because there's mention of his mother-in-law. Jesus cured his mother-in-law. But he also had that interest in God intervening in the world. He was asking for God to intervene. So he was a believing and practicing Jew as well. Now, some things about his character. Okay, St. Peter had a really strong character. Um, I love the figure of St. Peter, too, because he's so real. Um, I think he's very easy to identify with. He was very determined, impulsive, really. He did a lot of things in the gospel where it just like he felt the Lord or he felt some kind of movement inside his soul and he just went for it without thinking. Um, he was so strong, uh, strongly opinionated about things, sometimes he used his strong will with force. You might remember, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, where he pulled out his sword and tried to defend Jesus and cut off the, the soldier's ear. Okay, very, very impulsive. Um, but he was also afraid sometimes. Like we can see, we notice certain things in the gospel in him where he was fearful. The Lord called him from the boat, he started to walk in the water, and then he started to doubt. He started to become afraid. And Peter's also very honest. So honest that after his denial, recognizing that he had fallen so badly after knowing the Lord so closely, he had the most sincere repentance. So these are just um, some ideas about St. Peter, just so we can get to know him before we start to get into the encounter with Jesus. So this meditation, maybe for you, will be a little bit different in the sense that it's going to be very scripture-based. So if you have your, your Bible with you, um, it could be very helpful during this time. So we're just going to go through principally two scenes. The first one is the encounter of Peter with Jesus, the first time. Well, we know that Peter actually had somewhat of an encounter with Jesus before he, Jesus called him uh, to follow him very closely. But we don't know too much about it. All that's mentioned is that at some point, Jesus went to him, his mother-in-law's house in Capernaum and cured her when she was sick with a high fever. Um, but other than that, we don't know what Peter's reaction was or anything. So the first really significant moment um, in the encounter of Jesus with Peter was when he called him. So this is found in um, Luke chapter 5, 
And, and, it, and this encounter goes from the beginning, from verse 1, and I think it goes all the way up through verse 10. So this is a really nice moment because as we go through Peter's journey with our Lord, we're able to follow him kind of step by step through his conversion. He's already a spiritual man. He already has the faith of something that's really important to him. But he hasn't had an encounter with the, a true encounter with the Lord just yet. So this moment where Jesus calls him to a close following of himself, this is the starting point for a new phase in Peter's life. So it happened on an ordinary day. Peter was busy with his fisherman's task. He was out fishing. And Jesus was at the lake of Gennesaret, and crowds gathered to follow him and listen to him. And because the audience, the size of the audience was so large, Jesus wanted to go out into a boat so that he could be heard better. And as he's there, he sees a couple fishermen cleaning their nets because they had spent all night working and hadn't caught anything. And Jesus approaches Peter and asks him for permission to enter into his boat. This is a very significant thing. The Lord, the first thing he does is ask permission to enter the boat. I often think that when our Lord goes into the boat, when there's these um, scenes in the gospel where the Lord is going into the boat, it's the symbol of our soul. That the Lord, what he's doing with St. Peter, is asking him permission to come into his heart. That's the first thing that he does for us, because the Lord is never forceful. He always asks for permission. He's a, a real gentleman, really. He wants us to draw close to him, but he always asks for permission. So after he gets inside of Peter's boat, um, he asks him to put out a little from the land. And there, in, seated on his boat, he speaks and teaches to the people. So the boat of Peter becomes the chair of Jesus, which is significant because later, as we know, St. Peter becomes the Pope. So this is the first moment where the Lord is sitting in a chair in Peter's boat, acting and teaching from, from, from there. So when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And you can imagine Simon's reaction. I spent all night working and you're asking me to throw my nets out? After I cleaned them on top of it, it's like, <laughs> what? And he says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. How can you be asking me this? But then it follows something very, very different. He says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So there's already something in Peter already a step of faith where he says, I don't understand at all what you're asking me to do. I know that I am a professional fisherman, you're just a carpenter, and you're telling me to throw out my nets for a catch. On a human level, that's absurd. But at the same time, at your word, I'll do it. Because I trust in you. There's something about you that is pushing me to do it. So, Jesus doesn't give any explanation. He doesn't explain why he's asking him to do this. He doesn't give him any answers to his question. He just requires Peter to trust in him. 
this is significant for us. Many times, the Lord, He doesn't answer our questions. It doesn't seem like He does. But He asks us always to trust in Him. And then He acts. So what happens after this? The miraculous catch of fish. Peter throws out his nets into the sea, and all of a sudden, there's a miraculous catch of fish because of his faith. And the first reaction of Peter after that catch was an a reaction of amazement and also fear because he realized he was before somebody that was really, really important. He was before somebody that he would eventually recognize as God. And the first thing that he realizes is that he's a sinner. That encounter with Jesus, the first reaction that it brings out of him is that he realizes, I'm a sinner. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Perhaps after yesterday, you're thinking, oh, that's me. This encounter with Jesus in silence, I'm understanding now that before the Lord, I'm a sinner. And Jesus' reply to that exclamation of Peter was to invite him to trust and to open up to a project, to a mission that he was going to give him. And Jesus responds to him, Do not be afraid. Henceforth you will be catching men. So Peter recognizes he's a sinner, and Jesus, he invites him to a new mission. He says, I know that you are, but I'm going to entrust you with something. I'm going to use your human frailty, your human weakness, to do great things. And what is Peter's reaction to that invitation of Jesus? He accepts it. Without question. It says, he left everything immediately and followed him. He accepted that surprising call. He accepted it with generosity. And he knew he had limits, but he believed. Okay, so that's... This is the first major encounter of St. Peter with our Lord. Now, I'm only going to touch on a couple other scenes in Peter's journey, um, but we're not going to dwell on them too much because really any of the things that I'm going to mention, it could be like a whole meditation in itself. But I'm only going to mention them because I think they're significant as to be able to understand that figure of Peter and to kind of identify with him and his whole spiritual journey. So the next scene, significant scene in Peter's life is um, when our Lord is asking the disciples an important question. This happened in Caesarea Philippi. He said, Who do men say that I am? This is after Peter has already spent quite a bit of time with our Lord, getting to know him. And then Jesus asked this question, Who do men say that I am? And they all give their responses. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're... Okay, they come up with a million different answers. And then Peter steps in. After Jesus says, not just who do men say that I am, who do you say that I am? And in a way, as we're growing in our relationship with the Lord, he asks us the same thing at some point. Who do men say that I am? Who does the world say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who am I for you? And Peter, 
because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, not because he thought it through very well. He exclaimed, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. And Jesus tells him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter, without realizing it, he's given a full confession of faith, recognizing that Jesus is God. But he doesn't fully understand it yet. Actually, it's funny, because right after this, the Lord announces his passion, his death, what's going to happen to him. And Peter gets all upset, and he said, there's no way that I'm going to let you die. I'll go with you to death, I'll defend you to the last. And then our Lord scolds him, and calls him Satan. So Jesus is just, er, Peter is just after saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you are Satan. <laughs> because then Peter is responding with a response that's flesh and blood. That's not of the spirit. So it's going to take Peter time to recognize that the way of following Jesus is actually a way of humility and suffering. It's a way of the cross. And for us as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, this is a very, very hard thing to grasp. We like to follow Jesus when everything is consolation and happiness, but when the cross and suffering comes, we can be like Peter. We want to run away. So we all have this choice, just like Peter did. We have to give priority to our own expectations, our own thoughts about who Jesus is. We can do that. We can go our way and imagine that Jesus is all good, loving, which he is, and deny the cross. Or we can accept Jesus in the truth of his mission, what he's come down to do, which is to save us from our sins, to suffer his passion and death, and to rise again, and to follow that Jesus. And walk with him, because we go through the same. So Jesus is breaking his idea. He's showing him a different way, a different way. The next, um, just a significant scene, but we won't go into it too much either, is um, in John 6, where Jesus multiplies the loaves. He does the, the miracle of the loaves um, and the fish, multiplying it to feed the crowds. And in this scene, Jesus says, The bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And what Jesus says in that moment, it kind of seems unacceptable. Like for the Jewish mentality, this was absurd. This is a moment where Jesus is saying that he's going to give us the Eucharist. And even for them, and for us as well, this is a hard saying, it says. It's a hard saying to accept that Jesus can give us his flesh and blood for food and for drink. And those words were difficult for Peter as well. And Jesus knew that it was hard to accept that. And he asked the 12 disciples, he said, because many of his, those disciples that were listening to him, they were following Jesus up until this point. And when Jesus said he was going to give him his flesh and his blood for food and drink, they abandoned him. He said, this is too hard to say. You're crazy. And then... Jesus looks at the twelve disciples and asks them the same questions. Like, will you two go away? Are you not, will you not understand this either? 
And then Peter says something amazing. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I don't understand what you're saying, is what he's really saying. I have no idea what you're saying. I can't understand it, I can't fathom it. But I know that you have the words of eternal life. And if I don't believe you, who, to whom else will I go? I have no, no one else to go to, because I believe that you are the Holy One of God. So even here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter's still at the beginning of his faith. He's accepted the Eucharist without understanding it, the mystery of the Eucharist. But he's starting to understand that accepting Jesus in faith is not just accepting something, some ideas, some nice way of living, but it's accepting a person, someone. And that's what has to happen to us. Our relationship with Jesus is an acceptance of a person, not just something. That's our faith. We're only willing to lay down our life for him because we believe he's a person who is alive. So Jesus is showing him that he has to follow, Peter has to follow not only a different way, a way that's different than his own expectations, his own ideas, but that actually he is the way. Jesus, the person of Jesus is the way to eternal life. Okay, and then after this, there's a couple things that happen in Peter's life. Where I mentioned before, where Jesus calls him on, out of the boat to walk on the water. And he kind of makes that step, but then he starts to doubt our Lord. Because we can see in Peter's life, even though he has these moments of great faith, of saying things inspired by the Holy Spirit, really, he comes to weak points in his life. Where he doubts the Lord. There's a storm raging, he's walking on the water, he, he's made that step in faith, and then he starts to freak out. <laughs> he starts to doubt, and then he sinks. And the Lord has to pull him out. And then we also know in Peter's life, when Jesus was arrested, that Peter denies Jesus. The same Jesus he's been following for three years, so intimately, so closely. And then he denies him. So even somebody that's very close to our Lord, somebody that knows our Lord, can also go through that moment of Treason. But there's a huge difference between St. Peter, for example, and Judas, the other disciple, who also denied our Lord. But what happened to Judas? After he failed our Lord, he fell into despair. Because he only saw his own weakness, his own failure, and didn't trust in the Lord. And Peter, on the other hand, after a fall, a huge fall, wept in repentance. He wept. And Judas probably wept too. But Peter still loved the Lord and trusted. But he's going to suffer a lot after that fall. So this brings us to the other significant scene. Okay, the two main encounters of the Lord that I think we're going to concentrate on during this time of meditation. The first one is the call of Jesus to Peter in the boat, and the miraculous catch. And now, 
we're at the scene of, um, of our Lord meeting Peter after his resurrection. So this is after Jesus dies on the cross, he rose from the dead, and he starts to appear to his disciples, his apostles. And in one of these scenes, you're going to see some um, major comparisons. You're going to see some comparisons with what happened to Peter when Jesus first called him. So this is found in John chapter 21. And I think we're just going to read through the first part um, slowly anyway. And then just point out a, a couple things that will help you during your time for meditation. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Here we are again at the Sea. And the Sea of Tiberias is the same as the Sea of Galilee, actually. So where Jesus first called St. Peter, now we're at the resurrection and they're in the same place. He revealed himself in this way. Together were Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two other, others of his disciples. And Simon Peter, the impulsive leader, he says to them, I'm going fishing. And they all said to him, we will also come with you. So Peter already has that role of, uh, as leader. He's already starting to live out the mission that Jesus has entrusted to him as a leader. And all the other apostles followed him. And they went out fishing. So remember the first call of Jesus to Peter? He was fishing. Here we are again, he's fishing. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught something? No, they caught nothing, again. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? When it was already dawn, Jesus was standing on the shore. This time Jesus is not in the boat. He's on the shore. So there's a difference here. He's on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, have you caught anything to eat? Jesus is very funny. He's the same age as them, practically, and he's calling them children. Children, have you caught anything to eat? And they don't even know who he is. Who is this guy? Calling me from the shore and saying, children. And they answered him, no. Like, do you really want to rub it in our face? We're professional fishermen, and yes, once again, we have caught nothing. And then he said to them, cast the net over the right side of the boat, and you will find something. Oh. Does this ring a bell? Cast the net, and you will find something? Here we are again. So they cast it. They didn't even know who this person was. They didn't recognize that it was Jesus. They cast the net, and were not able to pull it in because of the number of fish. Another miraculous catch. And it was then the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved is always John. When you hear that line in the Gospel, it's always referring to John. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! John usually is the one, the deeper one, the more reflective one, that recognizes the deeper meaning behind things before Peter. Peter has a very different reaction. Remember, he's the impulsive one. So Peter, when he heard that it was the Lord, 
He put on his garment because he was stripped for work. He does something very crazy. You're out working and you're about to jump into the sea and instead of taking off your clothes, you're putting on clothes. What is he doing? But he does it because he knows that it's the Lord. And to be worthy in the presence of the Lord, he puts on his clothes. So when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his garment, for he was lightly clad. That's a nice way of saying it. And jumped into the sea. He jumped into the sea. And just swam like a crazy man to the shore. And the other disciples came in the boat, for they were not far from the shore, only about a hundred yards, dragging the net with fish. And he left the other disciples to do all the work. <laughs> He's a really funny guy, I'm telling you. And when they climbed out on shore, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went over and dragged the net ashore, full of 153 large fish. That number, 153, I heard it explained before, is a number of plenitude. So 153 fish means that the nets were so full, it was full to plenitude. It's significant because Peter, along with the other disciples, the apostles, were the foundation of the church. And their nets were going to be full. That's the promise of the Lord. That with the Lord, the nets will be full. We probably don't see that very, very much now in our world. But it's the promise of the Lord. He's the one that's going to allow the nets to be full of fish. And even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they realized it was the Lord. Jesus came over and took the bread and gave it to them. Jesus came over and took the bread and gave it to them. Does this sound familiar? It's a message of the Eucharist. And in like manner the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus was revealed to his disciples after being raised from the dead. They shared a meal together. This is Jesus' way of being with us forever. And we've been blessed this weekend because he's been with us exposed in our presence. Just being here, I'm telling you, I was talking to the sisters last night because we're not in silence. <laughs> and we were saying, it's just, it's been a huge blessing and a huge grace because the sisters of brothers, we like, we're unprofessional, we don't know what we're doing, like what we're talking about or anything. But the important thing during a silent retreat is not like what you're being told or what you're hearing from people. But the fact that you're in the presence of the Lord, and the Lord is working wonders in your souls, just being in His presence is transforming. It changes everything. So Jesus, in this scene, He's sharing that meal with His disciples. And then something happens to Peter. This is the intimate, close encounter, the last encounter of Jesus with Peter on on this earth. And what happens here is Jesus is about to ask St. Peter apart the same question three times. Simon, do you love me? Now, it's a sad thing because in the English translation we kind of lose the meaning of this. 
Okay, Benedict XVI in a catechesis that he led, I think in the year two, in 2006, he was speaking about the figure of St. Peter. And when he talks about this scene of Jesus meeting Peter and asking him these questions, he talks about how there's a very significant play on words here. And it could be very enlightening for us, so I'm just going to point, point it out. There's two Greek words for love. The first one is phileo, which means love of friendship. And it's a tender love, but it's not all-encompassing. It's not total. It's a love of friendship. And then there's another Greek word that's agapao. I'm probably pronouncing it all wrong. Sister Miriam would do a better job of this. <laughs> but this love, agapao or agape, you might have heard that before, it means love without reserve. It's love that's total and unconditional. It's a love that knows no limits. And when Jesus asked Peter the first time, Simon, do you love me? He's asking him, do you love me? Agapas me. Do you love me with a love that's without reserve, total, unconditional? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But the word that he uses is not agapao. He says, yes, I love you with phileo, with a friendship love, a tender love, but it's not total. Because I know my weakness now. If Jesus asked these same questions to Peter before the denial, he probably would have been bold enough, because he's so impulsive, to say, yes, I love you with agape, like total unconditional love, like totally. But he knows his weakness now. And he responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but not with that love, because I'm not capable of it. And Jesus commands him, go feed my sheep. Then he does the same thing again. The Lord asks him a second time. Simon, do you love me? And he says the same thing. Do you love me with this total love that I want? And Peter repeats the same response about his humble human love. Kyrie philose. Lord, I love you as I'm able to love you. Not with that total unconditional love. I'm weak, remember? And he becomes sad. Peter becomes sad. And then a third time Jesus asks him, Phileis me? Jesus steps down. Do you love me with the love of friendship? With a tender love? He no longer asks him, do you love me with agape love? With a love that's unconditional total. Do you love me with a, a friendship love? the love that you're capable of. And he responds, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you with that love. See, this is something we kind of miss in the English translation. It's very significant. But Jesus puts himself on the level of Peter at the last question. And it's significant, too, that the Lord asks him three times if he loves him. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. So he's kind of, in a way, recovering Peter's love. So it's from this point, it's here, that there's a trust born in Peter that allows him to follow the Lord to the end. Because he knows his weakness, he knows the kind of love that he's capable of, and with that love, 
He loves Jesus. And Jesus asked him only for that love that he's able to love. The one that also means weakness. And after that, Jesus showed him by what death Peter was going to glorify God. And the last words he says, he says to him are, follow me. So he gives him his mission, just like when he gave him his mission for the first time, an initial mission, when Jesus first called Peter, after the first miraculous catch. And now, after asking him three times if he loves him, he gives him his definitive mission. The mission of not only caring for his fold, as the Pope, but of loving the Lord to the end. Don't know if you caught the line where we were doing the reading today, where it says, um, oh, now I'm going to forget the line. Um, if you're called to martyrdom, then... When your vocation is martyrdom? Yes, when your vocation is martyrdom, neutrality, neutrality is treason. And Peter's vocation was to martyrdom. When your vocation is martyrdom, when it's loving to the end, to the last drop, Neutrality, not taking a side, is treason. A God who's died for you on the cross, who's given everything for you, requires a response that's total. It's complete. And the Lord, he stoops down to us. He's not asking us for the agape love that we're not capable of. He's asking us for the love that we're capable of. And he's going to give us the grace, the strength to be able to live it. Peter, later on, after this, as the Pope, he said to Christians of a certain community, and he also says the same thing to us, he says, without having seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe him, and rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. As the outcome of your faith, you obtain the salvation of your souls. We don't see Jesus, but we believe in him. And the outcome of our faith will be the salvation of our souls. So what we're going to do now during the time of meditation, like um, I think Sister mentioned before, whenever you're going through a meditation, you can pick any of the scenes that I've mentioned, whichever one kind of sticks out to you the most, and just go through it slowly and let the Lord speak to you. I know when... Um, when Benedict XVI was talking about Lexio Divina, which is a prayerful reading of the scripture, this is the way that Christians are supposed to pray, is using the scripture, meditating on the word of God. There's different stages for it, so I'm just going to very briefly explain the stages um, so that you kind of know how to go through it properly. And hopefully this, this will be useful for you after the retreat, when you do your own personal prayer, your own meditation, that you know how to do it. The Lexio Divina, first thing you do is you read the scripture. You go through it very slowly. That's called the Lexio. And then after the Lexio, you do what's called the Meditatio, which is you see if there's a word or a phrase or something that sticks out to you in a very particular way, and you just dwell on that. Okay, because the whole point of meditating and doing scripture is not to hurry through it, but to let something penetrate and sink deeply into your heart. So even if it's just a word, or if it's just a phrase, 
let the Lord penetrate your heart and dwell on that word or that phrase. And sometimes that dwelling, it's an effort on, in our mind of trying to imagine the scene, putting ourselves there, or sometimes it's just simply um, something that happens inside of our heart, where our heart feels very close to the Lord. And that communion of hearts is something that's called <coughs> contemplation, contemplatio. So sometimes in prayer, it's not necessary to use words, even. Just being with the Lord, heart to heart, is prayer. It's a higher form of prayer, actually, because what God wants is not just our mind, our thoughts, but he wants our heart. That's more significant. So if the Lord pulls you in that direction, let him do that. Then after that, there is the oratio, which is your response. Your response to whatever the Lord is putting on your heart, whatever phrase, whatever message you think he's trying to, to bring to your mind, you kind of, if it helps you, write it down. What is it that the Lord is saying to me? And then, what is your response? Because whenever we do prayer, whenever we do meditation, the Lord is speaking to our hearts, he's going to require a response. And that response usually leads to action. That's the last part, action. So you have lexio, the reading, meditatio or contemplatio, the dwelling on whatever it is that you're, you're meditating on, your conversation with the Lord, your response to Him, and then the action part. So at the end of your meditation, there should be something very specific that you're going to bring to your daily life. This is our resolution. This is actually one of the most, if not the most important part of your prayer. Because prayer does you no good if it just stays in the chapel. It should come into your daily life. There should be something that changes that deepens in your in your in your life. So maybe the Lord's asking you to work on a certain virtue, or asking you to change something, or to deal with this person in a different way, or to can be anything. But whatever it is, put it into action. Okay, so if it helps, just ask just go through four questions. The first one is, what is God saying in the scripture? Second, and what is Christ saying to me personally? Third, what is my response to that? To whatever he's saying to me, what's my response? And then last, what is he asking me to do? And if it helps you, end your prayer time in a conversation with our Lord and with our Lady. I, I think it's really important to always have a part in your prayer where you're speaking to our Blessed Mother and asking her for help because for us, she is, she's kind of like the gateway to Jesus. And she knows what it means to say a yes that's complete and total. So we'll just leave it at that. Um, I'm just going to finish with a prayer. This is called a universal prayer that's attributed to Pope Clement XI. I love this prayer because, well, it's long, so bear with me, but it's very complete. So I think if we just pray with all of our hearts, I'm 
that's going to help us during this meditation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I believe, O Lord, but may I believe more firmly. I hope, but may I hope more securely. I love, but may I love more ardently. I sorrow, but may I sorrow more deeply. I adore you as my first beginning. I long for you as my last end. I praise you as my constant benefactor. I invoke you as my gracious protector. By your wisdom, direct me. By your righteousness, restrain me. By your indulgence, console me. By your power, protect me. I offer you, Lord, my thoughts to be directed to you, my words to be about you, my deeds to respect your will, my trials to be endured for you. I will whatever you will. I will it because you will it. I will it in the way you will it. I will it for as long as you will it. Lord, enlighten my understanding. Arouse my will. Cleanse my heart. Sanctify my soul. May I weep for past sins, repel future temptations, correct evil inclinations, nurture appropriate virtues. Give me, good God, love for you, hatred for myself, zeal for my neighbor, contempt for the world. May I strive to obey my superiors, to help those dependent on me, to have care for my friends, forgiveness for my enemies. May I conquer sensuality by austerity, avarice by generosity, anger by gentleness, lukewarmness by fervor. Render me prudent in planning, steadfast in dangers, patient in adversity, humble in prosperity. Make me, O Lord, attentive at prayer, moderate at meals, diligent in work, steadfast in intent. May I be careful to maintain interior innocence, outward modesty, exemplary behavior, a regular life. May I always be watchful in subduing nature, in nourishing grace, in observing your law, and winning salvation. May I learn from you how precarious are earthly things, how great divine things, how fleeting is time, how lasting things eternal. Grant that I may prepare for death, fear judgment, flee hell, gain paradise. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.